But if you were here last week, you know Wilson gave a message called Three Core Qualities of a Disciple. And he said that those three core qualities were that, first of all, that you listen. And a real disciple listens for the voice of his rabbi. And you do that, we do that as believers through reading the Bible, uh, through being open to the Holy Spirit speaking to me through the Bible, through Scripture, through uh, the experiences that I have in life. And not just going through experiences, but asking God, what's he want to say to me through this thing that I'm going through, this experience I just had? Or dreams and visions. God can speak to us in all of these different ways. And so the disciple listens, and then the disciple obeys. The the disciple simply says, okay, I'm going to do what you're asking me to do. In fact, there's, there's, Wilson said last week, there's no area of life that's off limits. I can't see David's face when I stand over there, so there. There's no area of my life that's off limits. Lord, you can speak into any area. I'm going to obey you. Uh, do you know that catch that line in the song we sang, uh, Defender? It's so much better your way. You know, it's so much better your way. Jesus, I've seen your life, and I've seen my life. And I like yours better. And you're my rabbi. And I want to model my life after you. That's really the essence of discipleship right there. The third thing uh, Wilson said was a disciple shares. You know, you can't help but share. I remember right after I got saved, I told everybody, everybody I encountered about the changes that had happened in my life. And how Jesus had changed me. And how just all the incredible things that had occurred. When, When you're walking in this in this relationship with him where you're listening and you're hearing him speak and you're responding, then sharing is just a natural outgrowth of that. And uh, Will last week gave us a couple minutes at the end of the service to examine uh, which of those three areas we were going to try to grow in this week. Do you remember that? How many of you were here last week to hear that? Okay, quite a number. Good. Um, Well, what I chose was sharing and I had a goal of five, five this week, and I didn't make it, okay? In fact, I forgot about it for the first couple days. How many of you did that? You set a goal and you just totally forgot about it? Brave person, way to go. You have my admiration. Anybody that even raised their hand a little bit? Um, <clears throat> you know what you have? You have next week, okay? And for any of you like me, I got two, maybe three in um, sharing. But uh, I have next week, and I'm going to go after it again next week. And, and so that's what I encourage you with is uh, listen to the Lord. What area is he wor- working on in your life? And if it, if it is listening, then you know, maybe your goal was to read the Bible every day this week or to read the Bible five days, five, five days out of seven this week, whatever it might be. You have next week, so don't be defeated, okay? Don't give up. Now, we in America... We focus so much on believing in heaven. And, and so believe in Jesus, and you're going to go to heaven. And, and we have a tendency not to give the same, not to tie in this life on this earth with believing and going to heaven. To recognize that it's, it's not God's goal for us to get saved, to believe, and then to say, well, okay, someday I'm going to go to heaven. And really what we're saying when we say that is, someday I'm going to trust God for my eternal provision. I mean, whatever food we need in heaven, he's going to give to us, okay? 
Whatever shelter we need in heaven or clothes we need in heaven, he's going to give it to us there. Whatever, whatever heart needs I have in heaven, he's going to meet them there. And we, we have faith to say, well, okay, that's going to happen. But what God wants us to do is to draw that faith right back into today. And to say, it's, it's kind of like illogical for me to say, I'm going to trust him to provide for me for eternity. But boy, am I worried about next week. I can't sleep because I've got this bill to pay. I understand that. I've been there. But, but it's, there's, do, you, do you see the lack of logic in that? It's just illogical. And what God wants us to do is grab heaven and pull back into today. That's what his goal is for us. So the disciple, really to understand discipleship, we have to understand what it meant in that culture. And in that culture, there were people that were actually disciples, and there were rabbis. And the rabbis were teachers. And to be a disciple of a rabbi, it was a process you went through to be accepted by that rabbi. But you would have the rabbi that you wanted to follow because you saw his life, and you liked his life. So it wasn't so much about wanting to get everything that was in that rabbi's head into your head, which is how we take teaching today, don't we? You know, I have a teacher. Well, what, did you pass the test? No, I only got 80% right. That was only a C. We just, we focus on the knowledge aspect of it. But a disciple in those days wanted to get everything in that rabbi's life into their life. Because in, in this biblical context, it was all about how do you interpret the Old Testament? And there were different schools of thought and different ways to interpret different passages that directly impacted how you were going to live. And so you see a disciple that you, or you see a rabbi that you would say, uh, so much better your way. Man, I've seen your life and I like it. I want to live like you do. Can I be your disciple? What the, what the discipleship, it was an official thing. And a rabbi wouldn't have like 50 disciples or 100 disciples, have a group of disciples. It wasn't a classroom that they, that they taught in. It was life. Yeah. You, you spent time with your rabbi. You walked with him. And then after an encounter, maybe your rabbi would draw aside and you get to ask him questions. Why did you say that? Why did you respond that way to this person or to this situation? And like Jesus, so many times he draws aside with his disciples and he explains to them what he just said to the public or why he just did what he did. And so discipleship is an exchange of life. It is actually, it was the disciple was basically saying, I don't know how to interpret the Old Testament. I mean, I have some ideas, but I don't know how. I need to learn how. And I want to find someone who has already done it and they're living effectively for God. And, and so when Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, he's got to deny himself and follow me. You know what he was saying? He was saying, if you're going to be my disciple, then you've got to let me handle the tough stuff. You've got to let me figure out what are the right ways to handle these Old Testament passages. And when Jesus taught through the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard it said, but I say... He was interpreting for them Scripture. And it, as disciples, they had a simple choice. Either I'm going to take this, I'm going to follow this, I'm going to let this be my guide in life, or I'm going to walk away. He's no longer my rabbi. And so for the disciple, what we do as disciples, we're saying, Jesus, I want to live life like you lived it. Whatever that means. 
Whatever the consequences of that, I want to live life the way you lived it. And it's, it's just, it's an axiom, it's an axiomatic truth that the disciple becomes like the discipler, the rabbi. That's just the way it is. In fact, Jesus says that in, um, in Luke 6.40. Jesus said this, he's, it, and this was a warning passage, okay? He's warning us to be careful who we listen to. Boy, is that pertinent today, isn't it? With a thousand different news sources and a hundred thousand different podcasts and everybody out there has a voice somewhere on the internet that you can go to and you can listen to. And Jesus said this, he was he's really saying, be careful who you listen to because a disciple is not above his teacher. In other words, you're not, if, if you really become a disciple of that person, you're not going to be able to remain independent. The disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. And, and so it's a life principle that we all are modeling ourselves after someone. We all are following, we're all allowing someone to interpret life for us to some degree. And for the Christian, if we have someone else out there who has a louder voice in our ear than Jesus, then we're in error. Because he's the one that we want to be like. And so anytime anyone disagrees with him, then I've got to follow him, not them. And so discipleship is something we've really got to grasp. But when you really begin to understand this context and this view of discipleship, it has a tremendous impact upon how you read the New Testament. And, and some of the things, Jesus, like when, it, for instance, when Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Boy, doesn't that sound controlling? Doesn't that, I mean, doesn't that, like any human being says that to you, uh, young ladies who are unmarried, if you ever date a guy and he says, well, if you really love me, you'll do whatever I say. You know, there's one response. Do you know what it is? R-U-N. Run. And guys, any young single guys, you meet a girl and she's beautiful and gorgeous and all of that, but she either states outwardly or it's just implied, if you really love me, you'll do whatever I say. Again, run. Because no human being can actually say that to us. But Jesus can. Jesus can. Because he's the son of God. Because he, he, had perfect under, he has a perfect understanding of life. And a perfect understanding of who we are. And so when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll follow me. You'll do whatever I say. Then that, that's it's okay. Yes, sir. That's great. That's awesome. That's exactly how I want it. But now in discipling people today, we have to modify that. We're going to talk about this more next week. And actually next week, I hope to have Lori share uh, some of her experiences as a new believer who is really being discipled really well. But uh, as today, if I have someone that I am discipling, I'm discipling them for Jesus. I don't want them to become my disciple. Now, invariably, they're going to take on characteristics of the person that is their mentor or disciple. But it's not my goal to have them ever hear me say, if you love me, you'll do whatever I say. That, that's, that's a wrong-headed type of discipleship. That, in fact, that was the mode of this group, this movement called the discipleship movement back in the 60s and 70s. And I still bump into people today my age and a little bit older who are still wounded over that whole movement where don't date that girl, I'm telling you don't. And don't take that job, take this job. Where there was just this controlling thing. That's, you see, today we're dealing with believers and they have new hearts. 
They have regenerate hearts. They have the Holy Spirit in them. And so they, they, John said this in this kind of context. He said, you don't have any need for anyone to teach you because you all have the Holy Spirit and you all know. Now, that doesn't mean you don't need gifted teachers. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing here right now. But what it means is in the sense of the disciple obeying the rabbi without question, uh, that can only be given to Jesus, not to another human being. So when we're discipling people today, what I would say is, if, if I'm going to give you my time, and I'm going to take you into my life, and, and I'm going to disciple you, then I want you to consider anything I say. Don't just reject it out of hand. And uh, if you come to the point that you don't think you can trust me anymore, that's fine. We'll part company as good friends. But it, it should be that the disciple, you wouldn't want someone to disciple you whose life you didn't admire and you didn't trust. And so, of course... I'm going to consider what my discipler says, but not, not, not in this same way, because it's only Jesus who should command this um, complete obedience that, that we see him calling out to us in Scripture. Now, Jesus did tell us not to make believers, but to make disciples. And so it is incumbent upon every Christian in some way to be growing in that direction of just accepting that call. If nothing else today, just say in your heart, God, if you want me to be a discipler of others, then that's what I'll do. And, and show me what the next step is. The next step might be, maybe you need some growth in your own life. Or the next step might be, talk to your neighbor. He's, he's, he or she is eager to hear about Jesus. And, and lead them to faith. And then go to whoever you admire and ask them what to do next. Go to somebody that you look at and you say, life looks better your way because you're following Jesus so closely. What do I do to help this person follow Jesus like you are and like I want to? And so we're all called to that. But um, will you remember the Karate Kid, that movie? And the wax on, wax off scene, you know, where Mr. Miyagi... He, he, want, he wants to learn karate, and Mr. Miyagi uh, says, okay, I'll teach you karate. First thing, you're going to wax my cars. Yeah. And he's a wax on, wax off. And, and I think the guy's name was Daniel. He's complaining, why do I have to do this? He finds out later that that movement and that movement are essential to the, uh, to the form of karate he's going to be taught. So there are times Jesus will ask us to do things, and, and if we, we just, just don't argue with him, Okay. Don't argue. I remember in seminary, um, it, life in seminary was class and study. Go to class and read. Every, like if I watched a football game, I had to have a book in my lap so I could read between plays because I had so much reading to do. And um, um, I remember one of, my, one of my simple pleasures was watching the show MASH. And it was in vogue in those days. But MASH was a very cynical show. And I grew up in, in the midst of a lot of cynicism in the culture I grew up in. And the Lord spoke to me at once. I didn't even think he spoke in those days, but the Lord spoke to me and, and said, stop watching MASH. It's not good for you. Boy, I fought that. I just, are you sure? I mean, come on, God. MASH, and I think the Rockford Files was the only other thing we watched. <laughs> Fortunately, the Steelers were doing well in the 70s, and that helped me get along. But... Um, I wrestled with that, and I fought that, and I'm not sure I ever did obey it, but why, why didn't I just say, okay, I, I can live without MASH because, Jesus, you're enough. 
And even if there's a hint that it might be right that he's telling me to quit watching MASH, why didn't I just stop watching MASH? I mean, what's the big deal there? But you see, there are things in our hearts that we grab hold of and that we think we need in order to be happy and to be satisfied. And those are the real checkpoints. Those are the real pressure points that come up when God speaks to us about those. But um, this whole idea of discipleship is something far more, I think, than we, than we have understood. And I, I want to I look at the real core of discipleship today. My message is titled, The Heart of a Disciple. And, um, you know, a, a rabbi would have a group of disciples. And I can imagine that there would be different attitudes among the disciples. You would have your prime students, and you might have your students that are a little bit more slacking. Uh, and you would have some that are there because they just want to learn from you, others that are there. And I would think over time, most of them would fall into this category, that they would really learn to love their rabbi. But at, le- at least you could say the top ones would l- love the rabbi. So they're not following this rabbi out of fear, not even out of duty, but out of love, out of a heart commitment of love to the rabbi. And I think that's what Jesus is saying when he's saying, if, if anyone will follow me, uh, if anyone loves me, he'll do what I command. He, he's kind of like upping the ante to, I don't, I don't want any disciples that don't love me. Because what he wants is for us to obey him and to live for him out of hearts that are in love with him. And that doesn't mean that every act of obedience is motivated by a gushy feeling in my heart. There are times when duty carries us through low points. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he said, I have this charge to preach the gospel. And he said, if I do it with joy, I get a reward. Do you know what the reward was? The reward was getting to do what he wanted to do. It was he, got, he, he gets to do the thing that he's passionate about. That's the reward. He wasn't saying like at the end of the age I'll get a reward. He was saying my reward is doing it. Because the next thing he says is if I do it unwillingly, I have a duty. And so he's recognizing there are times that, boy, obedience and just following through is just a joy. And most of the time, we, we want it to be most of the time. But there are days, there are moments when some, for some reason, maybe you didn't sleep enough or, or, or whatever, when your heart is low and, and you're not really feeling it, but you just look to heaven and you say, Jesus, I don't feel like it right now, but I love you and I'm going to obey you right now. I'm going to do this right now out of, love, out of love for you. And it's almost like just a sense of duty. That carries you through those real low points, but you don't want to live there. If you've been living in low points like that for very long, then you need to come for prayer at the end of the service and, and get some, or, or come to the healing rooms or uh, come to the prophetic ministry and get some prayer to get broken free from that. But the, the primary motivation just is love. And I don't think it's love just in a, in a dedication sort of a way, but it really is love that is a passionate love for Jesus. So we're going to look at Romans or Revelation 2. And uh, Revelation 2 is really interesting. The city of Ephesus was a city of 225,000 people on a prime piece of real estate that gave them the best harbor in all of Asia Minor. And so it was a very wealthy city, a very well-to-do city. 
It was a religious center. They had the temple of Diana there and with hundreds of temple prostitutes. Uh, they, it was a city that was given to magic and witchcraft. You see that in Acts 19. Uh, it was a city that, uh, that had, or had uh, um, professional sports almost. They had these big sporting games there every year where people would come in from all over Asia Minor. And, and it was called uh, by one historian the Vanity Fair of, the, uh, of Asia Minor. The Vanity Fair of Asia Minor. What's that sound like? You know what this all sounds like to me? America. We're wealthy. We're given to entertainment. Vanity Fair. There's just so many different things to lay hold of in our hearts and our lives we can grab hold of that we think is the thing like MASH. And boy, this is the thing I look forward to. This is the thing that's keeping me going. This is the thing I love. And so here's what he says to them. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, he says, write this to that angel. He says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. So he's described as holding seven stars. The seven stars represent the seven churches in Asia Minor, seven major cities and seven letters he's writing right now. When it says holds, it, it's, it means different than um, me like holding this. I'm holding this right now, right? But I'm just holding on to it. When he says holds, it's more like putting a quarter in your hand and then wrapping your hand around it. So it's secure. And so he's holding these seven churches securely in his hand. And then it goes on to say he walks among the seven golden lampstands. These lampstands, uh, the, 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 the golden, um, the seven stars represent the church, and the lampstands represent the church also. They represent the church in the respect of the church as a light to the world. That's what a lampstand provides light. But these were lampstands with flames. They weren't like light bulbs today. And so the fire represents the presence and anointing and power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is walking among them, which shows us his involvement in the church. Now, it tells us this as well, that the church is more than just this amorphous thing out there where every Christian can say, well, I'm part of the church. Well, every Christian is part of the, the broad universal church. I've heard people say things like, well, I saw two people feeding the poor, and that was the church. And I get what they're saying. They're trying to say that, that was a really good expression of the church. That's what the church ought to be doing. But to say that was the church is it, it waters down the whole truth that there are local church bodies. And I look at it like this, there's like this underground stream which encompasses all believers anywhere in the world that are alive today. We're all united by the Holy Spirit. They're all part of the church, but there are places where that underground river breaks to the surface. And you have a group of people who have bonded together and locked arms together to say we are going to express the life of Christ in this community, in this region, in this world, because Jesus called us to do that. And so he is, he's, he's writing these to real local churches, groups of people that, that have joined together to love, to serve, and to honor God, to grow in discipleship. And so it goes on to say this. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men 
And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. So he starts off with these positive things, and he he says, I know your deeds. I see. You're working hard. You're feeding the poor. You're caring for widows and orphans. You are, uh, you are loving the Word of God. You're teaching. You're, you're out there ministering to people in the community and helping people to, to, uh, to open their eyes to who I am. You're working hard to keep this thing going. And he, he goes on and he says, you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. We could go into all of these different terms and talk more in depth about them. But the main point here is he wants them to know he knows everything they're doing. And I think this is the reason, because what he says next, if he had said first, if he had said first, I have this against you, that you've left, left your first love, what would they have said? They would have said, but Lord, aren't we, haven't you seen the perseverance? Haven't you seen how we've persevered in the face of resistance, how false apostles tried to come in? And we, you know, the apostle Paul warned them in Acts 20 that there would be false leaders try to come in, how we, how we uh, sussed them out as false and would not allow them to come in and spoil the, the life of this church body. Don't you see everything we're doing? And so he just lays that all out first, lays that all out first. And then he says this, he says, um, I have this against you. You have left your first love. And this first love, you know, the, the concept of primary love, it, it, could, it could refer to right after you were saved and everything's brand new and fresh and you're filled with joy and you're free and you know you're free and you haven't fallen into a rut yet and just, everything is great. But it could also refer to just the idea of primary love, most important love, most the, the first love in my life. For instance, the first love in my life is Lori. I love her more than my kids, love her more than my grandkids, love her more than any of you. I had a seminary professor once that had like six or eight kids, and, and he, to underscore this point, he said once, he said one of his kids came in and said, Daddy, if a bad man came into the house and said he was going to shoot me or mommy, who would you tell him to shoot? <laughs> he said, I looked at her and I said, I'd tell him to shoot you, because <laughs> your mother's first in my life. And as rough as that might sound, that's the best answer that kid could ever hear because that kid knows then that mom and dad have a first love for each other, a primary love for each other that's not shared with anyone else, and that, gives, that will give them security then. But I, I think that it probably refers somewhat to both, but th- this first love, the idea of working hard for God versus working for God, serving. Um, and, and remember, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Okay, it's opposed to earning. And so uh, it's this first love they were serving, but, but not with Jesus. Somehow they had lost that. Some they had lost this idea that really serving, Jesus, I love you. You're my rabbi. I love you. I'm going to do whatever you say. And, and out of love, then allowing service to flow out of love and relationship. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember I was probably 11 or 12 years old. One Saturday morning, my dad was starting a project uh, to build a set of steps in our backyard. 
And uh, my friends came by, and uh, we would go out in the woods, and I probably played army or something like that in those days. But I wanted to go with them, and I remember clearly standing there thinking, my dad is working here, and my friends are going out there to play. And I remember saying, I'm going to stay and help my dad. Okay, that, that was such a great decision I made because it was so good to be able to work with my dad. That was the first time we worked on probably six or eight major projects. It was a very old house around the house between then and the time that I moved away. But it wasn't so much getting the work done. It wasn't getting that set of steps done. It wasn't building the roof over the back porch or tearing off the front porch and rebuilding it or remodeling the kitchen. It wasn't that. It was the time I got to spend with him. And the relationship. You see, Jesus is looking for relationship. And and so he has this mission in the world that's fantastic and grand and powerful. And he he could do the whole thing. Him and the angels could do the whole thing without us. But... They decided, the Father, Son, and Spirit decided at the very beginning they were going to put this place in our charge. They created us to rule over the earth. And he wants to do that in relationship with us. And so the first love, relationship with him. Relationship with him. Intimacy with him. Growing intimacy. That doesn't mean we don't have ups and downs. But the trajectory of my life is intimacy and love relationship with Jesus. And then the obedience flows out of that. The discipleship flows out of that. I say, you know, I I look at your life and the way you do things is so much better than mine. And Lord, quite frankly, I've fallen in love with you. And uh, you're just awesome. Every time I get a glimpse of you, I love you more. And so I, I I want your life to be my life. I want to live the way you live. And there's no area out of bounds. No area out of bounds in my life. You can speak to anything you want to in my life. I wrote down a few things here that might indicate that I'm losing my first love. And um, let me just run through these with you. One, I might compare myself to others, especially when I'm serving. Mary and Martha story. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach. Martha is hustling around in the kitchen, getting the meal prepared and everything. And Martha gets mad at Mary, comes to Jesus and said, Jesus, tell Mary to help me. And so she's comparing herself to what Mary's doing rather than just finding joy in what she was doing. And so that that might be an indication. Or I get upset with others while I'm serving. It kind of like flows with the same thing where Martha's upset with Mary even while she's serving. Um, Maybe it would be that I'm never at peace. Either I feel like I didn't do enough or I didn't do good enough. That, That could be an indication I'm losing my first love. Or I resent being inconvenienced to serve God or, or any others who have a need. I remember the first time in ministry when there's a Steelers game going on. I'm a Steelers fan, in case you don't know that. And uh, this was still in the 70s and the great years. Yeah, boo, come on, come on. Be nice. And I got a phone call from someone. It was a small church. We probably had 30 people in it at the time. And this person had a legitimate need. It wasn't like, um, you know, I'm depressed, will you please come and visit me? But there was a legitimate, serious family thing. And I remember I had to tear myself away from that game and go and help them. But I remember how joy, what the joy I got when I decided I'm not going to tell them to wait an hour. I'm going to go right now. And I decided that, and it brought me great joy. But there have been other times, honestly, where you, 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 you're, you resent being called upon. And if I do, then I'm probably drifting out of a first love relationship. 
Another one would be, um, I judge others for not being as committed as I am. You know, uh, we had our first prophetic class last week. And Lori and I come in, and the worship team just started a song. And everybody's standing around back here talking and just guffawing and stuff, laughing. And I'm thinking, wait a second, worship is starting. And so Lori and I go up in the front row, and we stand up and start worshiping. And I'm worshiping, and I'm thinking, what's wrong with them? Why the heck don't they get up here and worship? Is this how this class runs? And, and I'm really, I mean, I'm... I'm honestly worshiping, but I'm also honestly judging everybody else in the room at the same moment. And then, suddenly that song ended, and Derry Turnbow, who's sitting right here, turned to the band and said, okay, when we start the first song, and I realized then, this is worship practice. This wasn't the real thing. (laughs) Now, if you do that a lot, if you do that all the time, I mean, any of us can fall into that, but if you do that all the time, then you you probably stepped out of your first love somehow there's some pride that slipped in or something like that you know another thing that um could make this difficult is i don't get any joy out of giving you know i giving financially you know in our culture we feel like um financial you know money is private money you, you can you could talk to me about whether i'm being loving my wife or whether i'm being loyal to my wife or my spouse you can ask me if i'm reading the bible you can, you can ask me all sorts of things, but if you ask me about my money, you're going way too far. I want to tell you that is the spirit of the day. That is a spirit of Antichrist that is not right. We need to break out of that and reject that thinking because Jesus talked more about money as an indication of where our hearts were and how, how we were growing as disciples than, than just about anything else. And if I'm part of a church body, but I resent being asked to give, or I resent the implication that I should give, or I should give sacrificially, then I, I'm, I, you know, I might be drifting away from my first love. Yeah, because this church body, part of the mission, it's part of the mission, and Jesus' mission to reach the world, and he does it through local churches. And so that if, if, I, if I have that, if I have like this reluctance and this hesitation to give and I give grudgingly, and I remember once someone challenged me to this many years ago when we were in Champaign and um, this guy, very gifted, very gifted prophetically, we were giving, we were tithing, but he said, you know, Van, he said, my sense is you're not giving joyfully. And I thought about that. I thought, you know, he's really right. We were giving, but I was giving kind of like, reluctantly and there, there's when we get past that and we can start saying I'm giving joyfully but that, that can be an indication that we've, we've drifted from that first love anyway so, um, so he says this he says remember from where you've fallen remember remember where you've fallen from and then he says repent so uh, we, we have to recognize the fact that I'm not serving out of love. God, I, I repent of that. I want to serve you out of love. I know that's what you're looking for. I know that's what your heart is. And then he says, do the works at first. Redo. So we remember, we repent, and we redo. And the works at first probably aren't much different than the works are going to be now. They're just going to be done from a different heart and with a different level of joy, with a different level of excitement and expectation as to what God's going to do in and through us. Now, he goes on to this, and he says this. 
He says, remember from where, he says, if you don't do that, I'm going to come to you and I'll remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And he's speaking to the whole church here. And this would mean the anointing that God has on a church's life is going to diminish. And I I think that this is something that the Lord, if, if he ever has to do this, would do it with a broken heart. It's like when he looked at Jerusalem and said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem weeping, you who kill the prophets. And, and, and all those who are sent to you, how often I would have gathered you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. And so there is this warning there. But then listen, this, I'm just going to jump to verse 7. Um, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Have a, if you have an ear, that means do you have an open heart? Do I have an open heart? Have I, am I really honest when I'm saying, God, in, there's nothing off limits here. Nothing off limits, Lord. So I hear, and, and if, I, if I remember, repent, and, and enter back into that first love, primary love, you're everything, then he says this, to him who overcomes, and overcoming means the getting back into the first love, saying no to the spirit of the world. And Ephesus was much like our country today, money and uh, power and entertainment everywhere and all these distractions that can come in between us and Jesus. And, and he, he says, if you overcome, I'll give you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, it's, it's like this. If I have in my mind, I've got Jesus, man, that's awesome. If I just had more money, I'd really be happy. I've got Jesus, that's often so awesome if, if I just had, if I could just get married, get a husband or a wife, or in, in some sad cases, get a different husband or a different, I mean, if, if I could just be recognized in my job, if they would just honor me for everything I'm doing. If it's Jesus plus something, then that something is probably diminishing my first love for him. I remember my first date with Lori, and I asked her for permission to share this. She doesn't remember it, but I do. We were, we were eating, and Lori at one point said, she said, wow, this is different. She says, you're not looking at other girls when you're with me. And okay, I'm doing pretty good, huh? <laughs> but what if, uh, you know, uh, there's so many shiny things in our culture, and I'm just going to use that terminology. What if something shiny walked past? And I'm looking into Lori's eyes, talking to her, and then I break eye contact with her and, and track this shiny thing across the room. What does that say? That says, you're not first. There's something else I'm going to give my heart to. And, and so in this culture today, there is just so much we can give, give our hearts to. And I think the primary thing has to do with money and possessions, but there are other things like honor and respect and success that fit into this as well. And, um, you know, you don't have to be wealthy to have a problem with money. You don't. Because it's the love of money. And you look at that, I mean, if a person doesn't have enough, or if they feel like they don't have enough, then wanting more is the love of money. And so you don't have to be wealthy to have that interfere. But, but we need to look at this. We need to ask, is Jesus plus what that I need to make me happy? Just take a moment and ask ask the Lord to speak to you about that. Okay, then just this. 
Lord, this thing I give to you. Tell him that. Just say, I'm not a lover of possessions, if that's it. I'm not a lover of the, the idea of a relationship, if that's it. If I'm, if I'm married, I, I love my wife, no doubt about that, but her husband. Whatever it is, just give it up to him. Now ask him to give you grace just to walk this out. You know, every time this tries to come back in, I want you to say this to yourself. I want you to say to yourself, you say, I love Jesus first. I love, I have a first love for Jesus. I love Jesus first. And I believe God's going to break us free from, from things like this that, that could interfere. But here's the key thing. The, uh, in Revelation, he says, I'll give him to eat of the tree of life. Do you know that's the tree that Adam and Eve were put out of the garden so they would not eat of it? The tree of life? Now we get to eat of the tree of life. And Revelation 22 tells us that the leaves from this tree are for the healing of the nations. And Jesus told us, freely you've received, freely give. So if I get to eat of that tree, that means I need to pass those leaves on to other people too. And the idea that I get to reach into the future and pluck leaves off of the tree of life and bring them back into the present and give them to people, feed them to people to eat for their healing makes this so important that I grow in and maintain a first love relationship with Jesus because that's the key to me walking in real Holy Spirit power and anointing. So... We're going to take this up again next week. We're going to look at some passages in the New Testament directly about discipleship and um, some great stuff there. And I'm going to have Lori share some things about her uh, experiences as a disciple.